From 1981 to 1987, I worked directly with homeless teenagers and runaway kids in New York City. Then I had something terrible happen. Somebody I supervised, somebody I was responsible for, one of my coworkers, a 65-year-old nun, was killed by one of the uh, young people we were working with. A young man, she was stabbed to death when he was high on crack cocaine and he wanted to get more money from her to buy drugs, so he killed her. Broke my spirit in uh, many ways. Uh, I became disillusioned. I started to doubt there was even a way to help homeless and at-risk kids. I stayed in the nonprofit field. I took an administrative job at a large nonprofit called St. Christopher Otley, and I was pretty much pushing paper around. I had nothing to do with the direct care of kids. And after four years of doing this job, I knew my heart wasn't into it. I started thinking about going back to school, maybe pursue a master's degree in physical therapy, something health-related. And uh, really, I felt like I was done in terms of working with homeless and at-risk kids. That, 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 had been, that part of my life was over. And then in August 1990, I got a phone call. And now that I look back on it, it was one of those calls that changed my life. The call was from a supervisor at St. Christopher Audley named Paul Jensen. He had just started there, and I actually knew Paul briefly from when I had volunteered at Covenant House nine years earlier. He had been there then as a paid staff, and he and I crisscrossed there for a few months. And then he had left, and I stayed. And now we were back working in the same organization. So we knew each other a bit, but not really well. And he called me and said, listen, St. Christopher's has a 20-bed shelter for homeless teenage boys in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, called the Epiphany Youth Hostel. And it's pretty much of a disaster, and I'm responsible for it, and I'm going to let the director there go, and I want you to run it. What do you think? Now, I knew the Epiphany Youth Hostel. I had visited there once before about a year earlier to see a good friend of mine who was working there at the time. And I had even met the director, who they were about to let go. Epiphany had a rough crew of kids. These were all young men, ages 18 to 21. Kids had been living on the streets, on the subways, coming out of prison with nowhere to go, gang members. And Williamsburg itself was rough back then. Now, from what I hear, it's all hipsters living there. And it's beautiful new high-rent buildings and restaurants and Starbucks. But back then, in 1990, Williamsburg was basically crack houses, empty rubble-strewn lots. You'd hear gunfire all night long. It was dangerous, a very dangerous part of the city. And sitting in the middle of all this was the Epiphany Youth Hostel in what had once been a convent for nuns. So I told Paul, no, I turned the job down. I told him, I said, listen, four years ago, someone I cared about died at the hands of a homeless young man. And I really don't think there's a way to help these kids. I don't. I don't know if they are even reachable. So thanks, Paul, for considering me. But the answer is no. And he said, listen, I agree with you. Most programs to help homeless and at-risk kids are poorly run. The people who run them may be well-intentioned, but most of them don't know what they're doing. But I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this work for a few decades, and there is a way to reach these kids. There is a way to help them turn their lives around. And if you take this job, I will teach you how to do that. 
I think you should be open to accepting this job, Mark, and I think you'd be really good at, at it, so think about it. So I told him I would. I talked to one other high-level person at St. Christopher Audley, a man I knew. He was an older man who was a former priest. I told him I was considering the Epiphany job, and he said to me, why would you go to that God-forsaken neighborhood and work there? He couldn't believe I was even considering it. Then, the human resource director for another nonprofit in upstate New York called me and said he had a job he wanted me to consider. Would I at least go up and meet with him? So I did. And it was in the country. The place was gorgeous. There were beautiful trees and gardens. And uh, I told him that I was considering taking this job in Williamsburg. And he came right out and said, why don't you come and work here as an administrator? Okay, we can pay you well. And really, would you pick Williamsburg, Brooklyn over this? So I was tempted. I was really tempted. But there was just something about the opportunity at Epiphany that pulled at me. You know, the chance to learn from Paul and to really learn how to work with at-risk kids. And I don't know, it was hard to explain, but I just felt called to give it a chance. So I phoned Paul and told him I'd do it. Now, before I could even start there, things got bad. I was supposed to start the day after Labor Day, 1990, and a few days before that, Paul called me on the phone and told me that he had his boss on the phone too. Bob McMahon was his name. Bob was head of the whole St. Christopher Audley organization. And they were going to send me a fax. There was no email back then, and faxes came out on like rolling paper, like toilet paper. So I get this fax, I'm still on the phone with them, and I look at it, and it's a petition signed by the entire staff at the Epiphany Youth Hostel. And I mean, everybody, even the cook and the maintenance man signed this petition. And it's a petition with a series of demands, the first of which is, we want our old director back. And the second of which is, we don't know who Mark Redman is, or what his qualifications are, but we do not want him as our director. So now I'm on this conference call, with Paul and Bob, and I am fully expecting them to say something on the lines of, okay, Mark, we really need to let things cool down over there a bit. You should not go to Epiphany next week. Give us some time to meet with the staff and hear them out, and then we will let you know what we want to do next. That's what I thought they would say. In fact, that's what I was hoping they would say. I didn't want to go there after reading this petition. You know what Paul and Bob said? They said to me, Mark, you go to Epiphany next Tuesday, just like you're supposed to, and you show those people you are not going to be intimidated. We will back you 100%. You have our full and complete support on this. No matter what those people have to say, the heck with them. I'm on the phone and I gulped and I was like, okay. And that's what I did. The following Tuesday, I took the subway to Williamsburg and I walked the 10 blocks to Epiphany. And when I got there, there were a few staff sitting on the front stoop. I smiled, I shook hands, I introduced myself and I went inside and I got to work. And I learned a lot on that first day. Of the 20 beds in the residence, only about half of them were filled. 
which seemed incredible in a city containing thousands of homeless kids. I saw kids hanging around watching TV and playing video games, even though it was the middle of the day, when in my view, they should have been working or in school. And the place was dirty. It was physically in disrepair. It was a mess in there. The next day I went back and officials from the New York City Division for Youth were there to greet me. They toured through, they saw the mess, the empty beds, the lack of any structure, no activities. Now I was hoping that since this was only my second day in the job, they would cut me some slack. They did not. They said to me, you have 60 days to get this place in order or we're closing it down. Within about a week, I began to see what was really at the crux of so many of the difficulties at Epiphany. Corruption. I got there one morning, and all morning long, different staff came into my office, and they made these cryptic remarks about food being missing. Every one of them said some version of, I don't want to be blamed, I didn't do it. I, didn't, I couldn't figure out what they were talking about until the part-time cook arrived that afternoon. Her name was Margaret. She was an immigrant from Trinidad, Tobago. And she came to me and said, an entire week's shipment of food arrived yesterday. And when I left last night, it was all there. And now almost all of it's gone. And this has happened many times before. Somebody on the overnight shift must have taken it out of here and sold it locally. In fact, I can almost guarantee you, Mark, that we will see that food being sold in one of the bodegas nearby. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So I called my friend, who I knew who had once worked at Epiphany. She now lived in Illinois. And she basically verified what the cook said. She said to me, that place is incredibly corrupt. You have a crew of three or four staff in there, all men, who steal from the program. They're all local guys, they're all from Williamsburg, and your cook is probably right. They most likely pulled their cars right up to the building last night and lifted all that food out of there and sold it locally. And she said, there were always stories going around that these guys were also selling drugs to the kids in the house and that they were even having drug parties at night right in the house. So I asked her, why hasn't anyone tried to stop this? And she said, most of the other staff members there are good. They want to do what's right, but they're frightened by these guys, and frankly, I don't blame them. She filled me in on a bunch of other things about Epiphany, and before we hung up, she said something I'll never forget. She said, Mark, Epiphany could be a great place for homeless kids. It is so needed, and you do have some good staff there. I believe God has put you there for a reason. God is with you, Mark. She was a very religious person, and so am I, actually. And hearing her say that really made me feel good. It really gave me comfort. From that point on, it just became a pitched battle. I made it known to these guys who were doing these things that I knew what they were up to, and I wanted it to stop. I even told one to his face, I know you're one of the ones taking food out of here at night. And of course, he was like, no, 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 it's not me. I learned a valuable lesson. I had thought that if you confront people like this and you tell them you know what they're doing, that they then will stop. But they don't think like that. They basically had a really good thing going on for a long time and they knew it and they wanted it to stay that way. So they fought back. 
One of them asked for a meeting with Paul and Bob. And when they sat with the two of them, he absolutely ranted and raved, insisting that I had called him a racial epithet. Then, a few days later, Paul calls me. And he says, I'm going to ask you a simple question, Mark. Did you give $25 to one of the kids at Epiphany? And he named the, the boy's name. I said, no. And he said, did you give any kid there any money recently? And I said, no. What, what is this about, Paul? So then he, over the phone, he reads me a letter that he received from one of the young kids living at Epiphany. And it says in the letter, Mark Rebin offered me $25 if I promise to tell you that he's doing a good job. I could not believe it. I sat down with the kid, and he admitted he did it because one of the staff there offered him $25 if he'd send that letter and get me in trouble. He didn't want to tell me which staff member it was, and I didn't press him. I didn't want to put him in that position. You would have thought that that would end this kind of thing, but a week later, a second letter from a different young man was sent to Paul alleging the same thing, except this time the dollar amount went up. This time it was like $40. And I remember Paul said to me, he said on the phone, he said, you know, in a way this is a good thing. And I was like, really? How is that? And he said, because these men are now desperate enough to attack you in the one area in which Bob and I have absolute confidence in you. And I said, what's that? And he said, your integrity. They're trying to impugn your integrity, and we have no doubts about your integrity, Mark. Hearing him say that made me feel so good. It really did. It was so powerful and so affirming to hear that. Some mornings I'd arrive at Epiphany and discover unsigned notes slipped under my door. We're going to destroy you, was one. You will regret ever having come here. Remember getting that one? Another time I arrived and discovered that someone had slipped into my office through a window and ransacked all my papers and files. One of these guys even got a lawyer to write a letter threatening to sue me. Now the other staff, who were not engaged in any of this kind of stuff, they didn't do anything to help me. I finally asked one of them why. I said, why? I said I'm dying here. I'm, I'm just getting, you know, pot shots left and right. And she said, I just want to stay out of it. This is between those men and you. I, I had a hard time understanding that, that she and others would just stand by and watch me get blindsided time after time. But there was one exception, one person, and that was the cook, the part-time cook, Margaret. Paul came by Epiphany one day, and she pulled him aside, and she said to him, that man, Mark, he is good. And he told me that. On those days when I worked late at Epiphany, she'd come into my office and pass me a plate of whatever she'd cooked for the house. But then one night, as all this craziness is just getting worse and worse, she slipped a plate of food onto my desk, leaned over, and whispered to me. She said, people talk to each other in front of the cook as if she's not even there. And I've heard these men talking about you, and they are talking now about physically hurting you. So please be careful. I took that seriously. Up until that point, I've been taking the subway to Williamsburg and then walking to Epiphany. And really, it would not take a whole lot of money to pay someone to have me shot or stabbed as I made that walk. I called Paul and told him what Margaret had said. And I asked, can you guys supply me with a car? And he had one for me the next day. So I started driving to work. But even with that car... 
I was scared. I could barely relax. I'd love to tell you I was calm and nonplussed, but in truth, my stomach was in a permanent knot from the anxiety of all this. I had trouble sleeping. Coming into Epiphany each day felt like I was walking into a booby-trapped environment, not knowing what threat was going to come at me next or from what direction. I wondered, how did people like Malcolm X do it? Martin Luther King, Oscar Romero, even Jesus, how did they manage to continue on with their life and their work and their mission, knowing in the back of their minds that they were marked, that someone out there was out to get them and do them harm, and they would never know when or how it was going to happen? How did they go on? How did they live like that? Well, I found out. This went on for about two months, and then finally we caught a break. These men, and one in particular who I began to realize was their ringleader, they continue to send Paul and Bob these crazy letters, accusing me of all kinds of terrible things. At one point, Bob said, Not only are these letters outrageous, they're filled with misspellings and grammatical errors. I have to wonder if these people are even literate. Don't you need at least a high school diploma to work at Epiphany? And you did. It was a state requirement. So we decided to check with the State Department of Education to see if these people even had a diploma. And it turns out most of them did not. They had lied in their resume, including the guy who was the ringleader. So we were able to let them go based on state regulations and falsification of resume. Without their leader there, the others who remained, they just started to trip themselves up and we get rid of them too within a couple of weeks. Once everybody was gone, Paul called for an all-staff meeting. We gathered in one room, and he pointed at me, and he said to everyone there, this is your director. No more standing on the sidelines. No more watching while people take shots at him. I need to know, are you with us or not? Because we have a heck of a lot of work to do to get this place into shape. And they all said yes. And now... Really, we could get moving. Now we could implement changes. When I had started at Epiphany, I had immediately wanted to introduce some of the program components I learned about from Paul, life skills groups, pre-employment classes, GED prep, therapeutic groups, a behavior management system. But Paul had said to me, he goes, you can try, but none of that's going to work because you first need to address the personnel problems you have and you need to get a crew of people in there who you can trust and who are skilled and capable. And he was right. He was right. I knew he was right. And now finally we were able to do that. We plunged ahead. The staff who remained, really, they turned out to be excellent. And I was able to recruit and hire some very good people to replace the ones who were gone. We filled all 20 beds with homeless kids. And within a short amount of time, we had a majority of young men working or going to school or in most cases doing both. The part-time recreation worker we had quit, which was good because he wasn't doing anything anyway, and I started a touch football team that competed all throughout Brooklyn. I convinced someone to donate sod for the backyard, so now we had a nice, pleasant backyard for the boys to relax in, and we even created horseshoe pits there as well, and we had tournaments at night. And when my grandmother passed away, I picked up a lot of her nice furniture, and I gave it to Epiphany. The people, the city officials were impressed. They didn't close us down. In fact, one year later, 
they declared the Epiphany Youth Hostel to be a model program for the entire New York City to emulate. Then they gave St. Christopher's the funding to start another one, and another one, and I believe they're up to five homes now. Hundreds of homeless and at-risk youths, if not thousands really, have been helped by Epiphany. I look back on that whole experience, and it was really a formative one for me in so many respects. It, changed, it really changed my life. First of all, I didn't go and uh, become a physical therapist. I stayed in the field of working with homeless and at-risk kids. And the things I learned from Paul, how to help homeless youth, and at-risk youth, those are things I still use today, 25 years later, the things he taught me back in 1990 and 91 at Epiphany. But the most important, I think, the most important thing I learned is how vital it is to have someone's back when they're being unfairly attacked like I was. Because Paul and Bob supported me, I was able to hang in there. I was able to persevere and what was a really difficult and frightening situation. Those two men believed in me, and they weren't afraid to tell me that, and that helped me to believe in myself. So I will always be grateful to them, and I will always be grateful to the part-time cook, Margaret, who saw what I was trying to do, who saw that I was trying to do something good for homeless kids, and she went out of her way to help me, would. She did not stand on the sidelines. And the lesson there is that in life, when things are difficult, when the chips are down, you never know who is going to come to your aid. Sometimes, even from the most unlikely sources. And when that happens, you will be grateful to that person forever. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by Liam Redman. So shines a good deed.